0: Welcome to Sarcoma Soundbites with Brian and Bob, an Oncology Learning Network podcast.
1: Good afternoon. This is uh, Bob Mackey at the University of Pennsylvania, along with Brian Van Tyn.
0: And I'm at Washington University in St. Louis, and this is Sarcoma uh, tidbits with Brian and Bob. I think that you know our focus for today should be Ewing's and you know and as we move into the greatest named trial of all time other than Euroway which is Recur. I, I love our Ewing's colleagues they spend a lot of time in naming the trials. I, I think that this adaptive trial design is something that you know I, I really like because it's answering questions which is you know there's a lot of options for a very chemosensitive tumor of what to use right. And do we really know the order of which we should be using things to prolong survival when we can't cure people?
1: And, and we really had only you know, a bunch of phase two trials, right? Looking at each of these regimens, and you got some sense that when you gave uh, temozolomide and irinotecan together, it was uh, certainly better than giving temozolomide alone. And it was even better, it appears, just in a non-comparative way uh, to giving uh, uh, irinotecan alone. Same for uh, Cytopos, like Cyclophosphamide and topotecan, TKN. with uh, its activity as a single agent, and GEMS that have been to Taxol. Who used for a number of sarcomas, there was an old SARC trial uh, showing a little bit of activity there. Uh, that was the one that was cast out already um, in terms of uh, this particular uh, trial design, which was uh, um, really novel, kind of an ISPY sort of uh, um, structure to it. Yeah,
0: I know, and now we're casting out another regiment. And what I think is interesting in a really neat blinded presentation where we still don't know the data that's coming out in the other two arms, nitrogen mustards are jumping out at us as important in salvage. And, you know, is there an alternating regimen we should be looking at based on what we were talking about before? Or, oh, But, you know, I, I like cyclophosphamide. And it really actually makes me feel better because I've always had a conceptual problem with taking somebody who's been through 17 cycles of nitrogen mustards and then going back to them.
1: Exactly. But it, it's, it sure seems like there's uh, still some sensitivity since the act- mustard-containing arms are the last two that are oh, standing, absolutely. aren't they? I mean, um, I don't know. a couple of co- complaints about that trial, though. I guess, um, you know, they did use the Bayesian approach for uh, determining whether an arm should be continued or not. You know, they said that the survival, there's a survival advantage to using uh, Cytopo over Temozolomide here in a T-can. But you look at the survival curves, and I mean, I can't get a, a playing card through that. So you know? I'm not sure on what basis they're making that, or was there some um, normalization of the patients? There was a, a skew in terms of the types of patients who were on each arm that had to be um, corrected. And uh, perhaps that's where the difference is coming out. There there seemed to be, even in terms of uh, PFS, it was a modest one. So uh, if you had done this kind of a clinical trial using standard traditional statistical techniques, um, I, I don't think you would have had a positive study. But here, it's really, you know, does one appear at least somewhat better um, there's a lot more flexibility and allows the data safety monitoring committee to um, help make that decision is this a meaningful difference clinically or not um, perhaps not if if your chance of uh, responding is 55 versus 45 but once you get to the 70 30 range or, or even higher that seemed to be the case at least excluding temozolomide near and a Tcan that uh, that we have a winner so alkylating agents huh
0: Yeah, or, you know, one of those arms that hasn't been excluded yet, so much better, but when averaged for the other, this one at least, hopefully when they report out their last arm, which hopefully will happen within a year or so, I hope, uh, we'll get a really
1: good uh, Who knows, right? So it should be soon, Uh, but that's a really good point. Maybe one of the arms really will stand out from the other one and and, uh, be the clear winner, which would be a spectacular result for the study design, and, and, uh, you know, kudos to the the biostatisticians who designed it and the clinicians who put it all together. It's just a really tour de force, I have to say. And I'm looking forward to seeing new arms being added on there. Uh, for example, even though it's been banned, and then put on the shelf again, IGF-1 receptors, uh, receptor inhibitors, those are definitely active in Ewing sarcoma. And if you're telling me you there's a 10 or 15% response rate, well, that's been enough to get other drugs approved in uh, different sarcomas. I would love to see a comeback, um, even if we don't understand completely the, the biology of why a fraction of patients with Ewing sarcoma respond to IGF 1 receptor inhibitors. No, At least half a I, dozen phase two trials. It's very right?
0: nice in the era of modern sequencing to go back and figure out what was going on. I mean, th- there was something there that got very complex very quickly. And then when you threw in too many different kinds of Ewings, maybe we lost the signal. Uh, But I mean, you know, that was really disappointing data way back when, but I think that the dedication of this field to never letting anything uh, that has a a hint of promise go is important. I mean, there were entire careers set up around that that I think we need to figure out now why it didn't translate.
1: It's something we don't understand about the biology of of that receptor pretty clearly. What are we missing, you know? and. Is there a nuclear translocation that, that's been seen for other uh, receptor tyrosine kinases? Is there you know, some impact uh, somehow on transcription or, or epigenetic regulation? Who knows? I guess we'll, uh, that requires a lot more study. And IGF binding proteins, for example, a very complex set of proteins that we don't know what the heck those do, except to know that there's correlation between levels of some of those and either sensitivity to some of these drugs or outcomes um, in general. So uh, still a lot to be learned and hopefully... That or or, um, other newer agents, uh, what is it, the CDK12 inhibitors, um, which have been uh, looked at at least preclinically in Boston, looked very interesting as potentially active agents as well. The LSD1 inhibitor, which has been uh, developed through Ohio State and has now um, now been moved forward in in a number of uh, different formats. All that's going to be really interesting.
0: Hoping we can have a conversation soon about those, because it'll be interesting to see if that's going to translate. I mean, it seems to be safe. We've seen that early data, you know, at AECR last year. And so, where are we going to go? Where's that next big groundbreaking uh, avenue where we come? Kind of I guess to go the, on? the one
1: thing we haven't at least touched upon, um, not not really discussing high dose therapy um, in any detail, is is uh, another big question, which was a, a big hit at a prior ASCO. I think it was just just two years ago now with a maintenance therapy for rhabdomyosarcoma, how successful that was. And uh, there are at least some hints uh, in terms of the use of that from uh, one of the Italian trials that was um, one of the high-impact uh, abstracts of, of this ASCO.
0: Yeah, no, I think, you know, all these ideas of maintenance, but maintenance is also, you know, in the metastatic setting makes sense. And now, you know, there's a lot of ideas of adding maintenance all the way back to something that has an 80% cure rate. Do you even know how to add maintenance to? I mean, this is, these are, I'm excited that we get to start asking these sorts of questions, but, you know, we're, we're starting to walk into that 60% of, people are cured that stage three colon cancer with surgery alone.
1: That's a good point as well. That certainly isn't the the case for our Ewings, is it?
0: No. Uh, It was 20% with surgery alone. The chemotherapy matters. The radiation matters. You know, the multidisciplinary approach to actually treating all this matters. Uh, But, you know, it's a year already.
1: There you go. Boom. And I mean, one of the key things about Ewing sarcoma, I've, I've seen this for some of the consults I've seen come through over the years is, uh, idea that it really doesn't obey tissue planes and that um, uh, surgery alone really is not sufficient for, for managing the tumor. I really do need to cover the blast radius um, of the tumor uh, with radiation. Yes, there are some patients where you might be able to avoid it with a soft tissue primary, for example, but I'd be really, really worried, especially with these head and neck ones, you'll occasionally see that. Uh, similar to the rhabdos of the orbit, you just can't avoid uh, giving some sort of radiation to help with uh, with global.
0: You know, the good news is it works. Uh, the bad news is it works. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: But, you know, I think there were a couple other interesting insights out of ASCO of uh, some concepts and some new data kind of in phase two, especially from our Italian young colleagues looking at other regiments and what to do. And I think it was, you know, as opposed to the recurse study, which didn't like temozolomide nirinotekin. You know, there was another study just looking at temozolomide nirinotekin that actually looks very promising.
1: Absolutely. As as an upfront uh, window, right before they did their high-dose therapy, um, that that portion of the study we'll hopefully hear in a relatively near future, it was what? It was uh, on the order of a 30-35% response rate with temozolomide nirinotekin?
0: Believe it or not, it was actually
1: 50% okay. uh, would you had, it Helps to be naive to therapy. No, I,
0: I, uh, but I think that's regardless of any cancer, right? You know, early front, you know, most Regiments in lung cancer respond much earlier in line one than they do in line three there's this neat little paper where you can see response by line and you know is there any utility in fourth line chemotherapy and you know for the right patient yes for targeted therapy clearly but for chemotherapy at some point you know especially with a toxin and arising cancer they're already they've become so programmed to be resistant it's hard to do but you know this is a translocation driven cancer right and so all the damage that happens to the cancer we do
1: I think we're still waiting for some of the final data about incorporation of, of a topo1 inhibitor for high-risk patients with Ewing's. I think we could, we'll uh, hopefully get some uh, more complete data from the COG trial, which uh, did look at the incorporation of topo-1 inhibitors into the standard regimen. Not, I don't think there's a lot known yet about uh, final outcomes from that trial yet. So hopefully in the near future, we'll get some more data on that. Isn't it fascinating
0: that we sort of use the same drugs to treat rhabdo as we do to treat Ewing's? We just kind of mix up the order we give them. And then you know, there's, uh, at least biologically, rhabdo seems to stratify better, and so because of that, you have less intensive regimens, more intensive regimens. It'd be nice if we could get to that with Ewing's.
1: And it's interesting how the the same drugs just don't work as well in rhabdo either, right? At least alveolar rhabdo is just a, a really difficult, no matter what age you are. Um, that's for certain, obviously. in people do a little bit better. It's Another another challenge of what is the difference here between these two translocation-driven uh, tumors, at least for alveolar, rhabdo and, and Ewing's. It's uh, um, small cell tumors that uh, we'll continue to be challenged by, that's for sure.
0: No, but you know, the good news is we're challenged by them, but I think they do exceptionally well and we shouldn't actually undersell the advances that have been made. I mean, I think this is a field that, you know, when you start off with a, in the 1920s with, you know, Ewing and all the original diagnoses and, you know, you you first had cyclophosphamide that's the first chemo that ever disappears a tumor or makes a tumor disappear. You know, you, we've come a long way from, you know, one in five survive to one in five don't survive. And I I think that's something there the field uh, should be ecstatic about, but the good news is no one's
1: giving up. Absolutely. And I you know, hope we'll get to the point like a uh, standard risk ALL where you expect uh, or testicular cancer where an even higher cure rate is the expectation.
0: Oh, I look forward to that day.
1: <laughs> so we'll keep working on it, right? Get back to <laughs> the <a plan>, Brian.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Even I have Ewing's trials coming along. So I, I think that, you know, the future is uh, bright because there are a whole bunch of right investigators moving through our field, and I, hopefully each one will do that clinical impact. And so if we have an 80% cure rate, we need 20 people to have a 1% impact.
1: Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> as Murray Brennan has uh, said many, many times, so if each one of us does a randomized trial, we really will learn a heck of a lot in a lot shorter time oh, than uh, otherwise.
0: Well, I, I really enjoyed this part of ASCO, and I, I think it'll be fun as we move on to the GIST talks later uh, to really kind of take apart, you know, what's going on in GIST, which I think has been transformative, and some new ideas and soft tissue sarcoma, as we keep going through all the abstracts together.
1: Yeah, I look forward to that, Brian. And uh, it just sounds like a great topic for the next one, and uh, let's, let's chat again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Brian.
0: No, thanks, Bob.